A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. work really gets to the purpose of communicating, which is to enhance your understanding of the other person's mind, what they're thinking, what they're feeling, and for them to learn about you. And so it's that sort of key exchange of what's happening in each other's minds. Well, we've all been pushed around. Hello, and welcome to It's Complicated with me, Tanya Goodin the podcast to help you untangle your relationship with your phone. This is a podcast about learning to live healthily and happily with technology and the digital world and understanding why sometimes it's so hard to do. Because if we learn how to step away from our phones more, we'll be learning how to step in more to our lives improving our relationships, our work, and our health. I'm your host, Tanya Goodin, author and founder of digital wellbeing movement Time to Log Off. Each week I'll be asking a new guest what they've learned about the relationship with the tiny tyrant in their pocket, their smartphone. I would say the main reason why I decided to make a career in the digital world all those years ago was because I was really interested how the internet was going to affect the way we communicate and connect with each other. So this week's guest, who I've been trying to get onto the podcast for over a year, has made her life's work out of studying it. Professor Juliana Schroeder is a professor in the management of organisations at the University of California at Berkeley. And her research explores how we make inferences and judgments about each other from the way we communicate and present ourselves. So we had some really, really interesting chats about why we're using video conferencing so much in lockdown and whether that's really the best way for us to communicate. We talked about texting and emailing and situations in which actually that makes relationships worse. We had a really interesting conversation about Twitter, whether we should be using Twitter or social media at all to connect and communicate with each other, whether it's really enhancing our relationships or whether it's stopping us from relationship building. So much of what she researches is really relevant to how we're communicating today. And we touched on things we might think about in the pandemic, particularly when we're physically distanced from each other, how we communicate with people we know really well and how we build connections with people that we've got a more superficial relationship with. Her research is so fascinating. I could have chatted to her all day. 
but I condensed it down into a kind of 30 minute chat. I think there's some really interesting takeaways here that I hope are really going to help. So Juliana, welcome to It's Complicated. Thank you so much for having me. Um, So the podcast is about our relationship with tech, our complicated relationship with tech. But of course, in many ways, it's really about our relationships with each other. Um, Because increasingly, we're using tech to connect and communicate, never more so than right now. Um, And I know for the past 15 years, you've been studying social interaction and social connection. Um, And I actually came across your work with the wonderful project you did on the Tube in London last year, um, which showed, I I think it really at least partly showed what we're missing out on when we hide behind our phones when we're commuting. Um, So I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit about that piece of research specifically. Absolutely. We um, partnered with the BBC to run a conceptual replication of another experiment that had already been published that we had originally run in Chicago, and we've also done it in the California area in the U.S. And the whole idea behind this work was that so much research has shown that connecting with others, particularly close others, is a key ingredient to human happiness and well-being. In fact, you know, every happiness researcher says that, you know, the number one way to improve your happiness is to improve your social relationships and social connections. And on the flip side of that, there's all this work that's shown that loneliness and disconnection is problematic, not just for people's emotional well-being, but also for their health. You know, fundamentally, it actually increases mortality when you're lonelier. And so, you know, all that work is pretty non-controversial, but... What my colleague and I, Nick Abley, reasoned is that there are lots of times when we actually are surrounded by other people and we could socially connect with them, but we choose not to. (laughs) And even in cases where there may not be other great things to do with your time, such as being bored while you're sitting on a train commuting into your job or something. And so, you know, you can think about all sorts of contexts where this happens in waiting rooms, at grocery stores, on your commutes. And so we just started examining this question in the context of public transportation. And basically what we find is that people, when we ask people to imagine connecting with another person on public transportation, they imagine that experience as being negative. So they think it'll make them less happy mm. compared to sitting in solitude or doing what yeah. they would normally do, which is <laughs> sitting in solitude. Yeah. I'd definitely be one of those people. I would predict that it would uh-huh. make me much more stressed talking to someone than sitting in silence. Yes. And there's all these reasons for that prediction that we explore quite a bit in the research. I'm happy to talk about that more. But I'll I'll give you kind of the punchline, which is that we actually have run all these experiments now. So I mentioned both the geographically in the U.S. and also in London, which is the one that you heard about, where we, we enroll people in an experiment and they have to volunteer to be in the experiment, but they don't know what they're going to do. So that's critical. Yeah. Uh, we give them like um, a $5 Starbucks gift card. We have other different incentives for their participation. And then we surprise them with the information that we randomly assign them into different experimental conditions. One of the conditions is to, on your commute today, just sit in solitude, join your solitude. Another condition is to have your normal commute, do whatever you would normally do. And then the key third experimental condition is you have to try to connect with another person today on 
the tube or the train. We've also done this in buses and cabs and airplanes. And then after they go out and do what we told them to do, then we have them complete a survey telling us about their experiences. And the punchline is that what we find in all those experiments is the opposite of what people predict, which is that actually people report the most pleasant experience. They feel the happiest. They say they learn the most on their commutes when they connect with someone compared to sitting in solitude or doing what they would normally do. And is this completely the same I was really interested in the fact that you've also done it in Chicago I can't believe that there isn't a difference in London because we're notoriously unfriendly and difficult (laughs) to talk to particularly commuting so are you telling me it was exactly the same results in London as it was in the US exactly the same results yes yes in fact I would even something interesting came up in the London sample which is that some people, more people predicted that it wouldn't, it would be somewhat pleasant. So if anything, the the predictions suggest that it's more pleasant. So there was a key, a key finding that came out of people's predictions that really highlight the mechanism of what people are concerned about, which is that conditional upon successfully interacting with someone, so starting up the conversation and the person actually talking to you, people actually envision it to be a pretty pleasant experience. They don't think it's going to be a bad conversation necessarily. The, all of the concerns come from the starting the conversation piece. So people do not think that others are going to be willing to talk to them. They think they'll be rejected. They, you know, don't think they think they'll be bothering people and that they're going to, you know, not know what to talk about. So all of the concerns kind of come in at that point in the interaction the very very beginning and do you ever ask it the kind of the other way around do you ever say to people how would you feel if or you know the the person that was spoken to what their experience was of the encounter is it just taken from the point of view of the person that you're doing the research with yeah, that's a that's a wonderful question. And we were concerned. We're like, what if the person they're speaking to isn't having a pleasant experience? Yeah. And we're only capturing the people who felt good about yes. successfully completing their instructions. Um, and so we have run experiments. These are in more controlled settings, like waiting rooms or with lab participants who are commuting into the lab in different ways. And there we do collect surveys from the person being talked to, the unsuspecting person who wasn't enrolled in the experiment who just ended up being talked to. And we examine what their experiences are. And there we actually do see the same results. So the people being talked to also report that they had a more pleasant commute than those who were not talked to. I don't know how long you've been doing that particular experiment for, but I'm wondering if it's got worse over time because of our habit of you know, disconnecting. I, I know. I remember reading the article that was uh, about your research, and it had a massive photo of everyone in a tube carriage all looking at their phones. And I thought, you know, I wonder if that's got worse over time that we're less likely to want to talk to strangers. That's a good question. The original paper came out in 2014, and we were we started the research in 2011, so it has been almost yeah. a decade of looking at it. And um, one thing that I certainly can tell you is that people's predictions that others won't want to talk seem to be getting stronger and stronger and that seems to be largely a function of things like people have their headphones in they're looking at their phones and you just infer uh, we call it pluralistic ignorance so you see them not talking you see others not engaging not talking not making eye contact and you infer that means that they don't want to talk 
And so if you, you know, to give you a more concrete example, if you survey everyone on a train and ask them, how interested would you be in talking to a fellow commuter? They basically put themselves at sort of the midpoint of the scale. So like on a one to 10, they put themselves at at the five, you know, cautiously, cautiously interested potentially. And then they say everyone else is at a three. Okay, so everyone has this gap in perceptions in terms of how interested everyone else is. And that's because they're just inferring because everyone's on their technology looking at their phones and nobody wants to engage. Yeah, but in fact, probably everyone was just looking at their phones because they've got nothing else to do. (laughs) Rather rather than being unfriendly. Yeah, they're being just bored, aren't they? Yeah, and we also looked at like potential costs of talking, like you lose productivity or sleep or other things. And uh, we didn't, or it's tiring, like you mentioned, maybe it would be exhausting or stressful, but we didn't find any evidence that that meaningfully changes across experimental conditions. Um, If anything, it seems like people overestimate their productivity a bit. So they, you know, it turns out it doesn't change productivity. And they also say that they learn a lot more by having a conversation. And so Mm -hmm. in that sense, sometimes people feel like they've actually been more productive. One of the things I loved about when your research was publicized is that then a whole load of badges sprung up that people could get to wear on the tube that said please don't talk to me (laughs) Yes. after the fear that this experiment would get everybody talking on the tube and I thought gosh how ludicrous that even though your research shows it's a positive experience people are still scared of it people are still thinking actually that's not something I really want to do the predictions uh, in the opposite direction are so strong that people really have these really negative reactions to hearing about the research results. And we, you know, we actually published an article in the Chicago Tribune when we did the original experiments. And one of the suggestions that came with the article was, why don't we have one train, one car on the train that's like a conversation car. So it's like four people who might be interested in conversation, just like they have all these different cars that are silence cars where people are only supposed to be silent. And that little suggestion was met with such animosity. It was kind of (laughs) on people like, no, let's not do that. (laughs) And then in London, of course, yeah, people were handing out, BBC was handing out these buttons saying, why don't you try chatting with a a neighbor on the tube today, tube chat buttons. And there was um, a lot of reactants to that where all these different um, markets sprung up where the button said, you know, don't 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 think about it, bugger (laughs) off. So, you know, and, and what I say is like, it's a wicked environment, you know, people aren't willing to even try it. So they don't learn. So even if they could just think about trying it once and opening that horizon, they might find that it's not as bad as they expect it to be. So we're not very good at predicting what's going to make us happy. That's what that research really showed for me, that, you know, our predictions are so far off. And I think there's a link between what's happening at the moment in the pandemic and how we're communicating, which I think ties into another really fantastically interesting piece of research you've done on the different forms of communication. So written audio, video. I think one of the things that we went into lockdown thinking was we all need to do video calls and how video calls are going to make us feel connected and how they're going to make us feel less stressed. And actually one of your pieces of research looked at 
communication across lots of different medium and actually showed that it was audio that made the difference. I think I'm right in making one of that as the kind of conclusions. Tell us about that research because I found that really, really interesting. Yes. And this work really gets to the purpose of communicating, which is to enhance your understanding of the other person's mind, what they're thinking, what they're feeling, and for them to learn about you. And so it's that sort of key exchange of what's happening in each other's minds. And there are some communication structures that are better for that than others. <laughs> and what our research has found is that synchronous media and what you're having sort of a back and forth interaction that's closely aligned in time provides you with so much more insight into what's going on in that other person's mind and gives them more insight into what's going on in your mind compared to less synchronous forms. And another really key aspect of this is the presence of voice, the human mm. voice. And it turns out, and we found this over and over again, that if you were to read exactly the same words that I'm saying, you interpret them really differently and you think differently about me as a communicator. And in particular, you are more likely to interpret them less favorably, be less sort of forgiving. If I have different opinions than you, you think of me as less intelligent. Um, you have a less positive impression of me. If you just, again, the same words, but you read them instead of hearing them. And what we've found is the reason for this is that communicators use their voices, what we call the paralinguistic cues, all the content beyond the semantic, the variance in their pitch and their amplitude, the volume of their voice and the rate of their speech to convey so much more extra information than what comes out of just the words alone. And you can really get so much closer to what the person is actually thinking if you can hear them say it in their own voice. And it also brings, and so not only are you like more accurate in terms of assessing what the person's thinking, it brings their mental capacities into more vivid to make them basically seem more intelligent. And so, yeah, you actually have a more positive impression of them when you can hear their voice. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, 
Visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And when you looked at video and audio, you didn't see, because again, you know, if I'm kind of predicting what would make the difference, I'd think, oh, so video must be even better, you know, by a factor of five better than audio because you can see the person. But your research showed that actually that wasn't the thing that made the difference in communication, didn't it? No, no. In fact, we've run experiments where we have experimental conditions like a, there's a, a subtitled video so you can see someone speaking to you, but they, they, you can't hear their words. You can just read them on the screen compared to just reading the words of the person. And the impressions of the person don't really change at all in, in that case. Gosh. Whereas if you hear them, and again, the same words, then your impression of the person changes a lot and it, it typically improves. You think of them as being more mentally capable. And so it really doesn't seem to be the being able to see them that's really conveying what's going on in their mind. It's about hearing them that really matters. And so the having a video conversation is fine as long as you have the voice. Um, yeah. it, doesn't, it doesn't hurt to have the visuals per se, but it doesn't really help as much as people think it will. That's certainly the case. And by the way, these are one-on-one -on -one interactions. So I do yeah. think, you know, there's a role for being able to see someone in terms of coordinating with them in group settings. Yeah. So I think one of the things that came out of that research was showing that actually the most conflict... And the least understanding happens in writing, in the written form of communication. And given that so much now of what we do in the digital world is writing, I'm thinking texting, email, you know, kind of Slack internally. What's your view on whether we should be doing less of that? I mean, Twitter, Twitter, you know, when I, when I was reading your research, I thought, well, we shouldn't be using Twitter, should we? We shouldn't be using it for any form of disagreement because your research seems to show that we don't understand each other when we're writing or that it, it exacerbates conflict. Is that right? And this really goes back to your original point about people mispredicting and not knowing what's going to make them happy um, or what will be best for them in certain cases, because what we find is that particularly in conflict contexts, people would actually prefer to write to each other um, because they want to keep distance they don't want to have yeah. to engage deeply or meaningfully with the person. Um, it's sort of it's too uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. It's easier to malign a person's views when you don't have to actually hear the way that they're responding to it. And so that's, that's their preferred medium. Of course, that's the one that creates the most conflict and leads to the worst outcomes in terms of um, people misunderstanding each other and thinking negatively about each other. We even use the word dehumanizing each other. And um, I do think it's interesting that so many of our interactions now are happening over social media where they're primarily mm -hmm. text-based. And you can certainly see many, many examples of this on Twitter, as you mentioned, where um, a person makes a statement, um, maybe even a statement that's sort of seemingly uh, innocent, and then it gets interpreted uh, by all these other people in a particular way. And then eventually, you know, the communicator themselves chimes in and they've 
feel like they've been misunderstood. And if only they, if only everyone could have heard it in their own voice, they would have understood mm-hmm. what the person was trying to convey. So there's a lot of misunderstanding that happens on those platforms and think- potentially dehumanization. Yeah. So do you think social media specifically fosters disagreement then? I mean, is it, you know, a kind of, I don't want to say a force for bad, but should we just not be using it to communicate from everything you've learned about how we communicate? Social media is is so fascinating. It's changed our society in so many different ways. I would say that there are several aspects of it that have potentially negative consequences. The medium is not ideal. It certainly uh, is the the medium that fosters misunderstanding and, and dehumanization. It also, there's been some great work that suggests that the incentive structure is set up so that people are quick to assert moral outrage over things mm-hmm. and that's what mm-hmm. gets them likes and it leads yeah. to these cycles the of outrage. And, yeah. Yes. <laughs> and so that's, you know, there, there's incentive structures that create problems there. There's also filter bubbles where people are getting all of their information, their content, their news just from those who are exactly like them. So they don't, you know, there's good work that shows that all the retweets uh, that liberals do are from liberals and conservatives are just retweeting conservative content. And so it's sort of exacerbating in that way. Now, of course, there are some upsides. It's efficient. It's an efficient way to reach out to many, many people at once. And it's also pretty good for keeping minimal connections, keeping in touch with minimal connections. But a lot of the work on social media is, is suggests that it's sort of a tool. And so it depends on how you use it. And so, you know, there's a huge debate going on right now about does social media harm our well-being or does it help our well-being is sort of in aggregate. And of course, it depends on how you define well-being, but also depends on all these different ways in which social media can be used. And so I'll just tell you one of the conclusions that has come out of that work is that um, people that are using social media more actively with their close friends, so basically reinforcing close friendships and engaging with others via social media, they're having the sort of benefit, this well-being benefits that come out of using the platforms. People that are using it passively, like just scrolling, that can make them feel bad, or trying to form new connections. That's when you start to encounter all these issues where people don't understand each other, there's disagreement, Mm -hmm. and so on. Uh, I think the platform's much more limited um, in doing that. Do One of the things I was wondering when I was reading your research is, do you think we communicate differently when other people are watching as well? I'm I'm thinking about Twitter, (laughs) that actually it's not a one-to-one, it's a broadcast communication medium, isn't it? So is there any research around how we are, you know, how we behave differently or how we are perceived differently when we're kind of broadcasting as opposed to, you know, just trying to connect with, with one person? Absolutely. Particularly, there's been some nice research in terms of people who are, who are disagreeing with each other and their engagements that they have on, let's say, Twitter and other forms of social media. It's less about really trying to understand the other person and what the, what they're how they're thinking about the issue and more about speaking to your audience. Yeah, and so, you know, you've, yeah. you've seen these debates you know, publicly where each person is like, it's they're talking to each other technically, but in, in reality, they're talking to their own audiences yeah. and they're not actually making any progress on the issue. 
and they're just trying to get their own side to sort of like them more. Um, and so it's pretty unproductive. So we shouldn't really think about social media as a tool for connection. Yeah, or just kind of maintaining the close relationships that you already yeah. have. It can be nice for that. Yeah. So it has, I'm really interested when I see all the research you've done, whether it's changed your relationship with tech or the way you use it. Have you found yourself, I mean, for example, after the big bit of research you did on the tube, did you start talking to strangers? Did you put, do you put your phone away more? Do you find yourself kind of consciously connecting with people you don't know? Has it actually changed the way you operate in the world? Uh, it has. Yeah. I think every research project I do leads me to update about human psychology and kind of learn something about the world that does change me a little bit. And I think it's, you know, sometimes people read that research and they think, oh, I, I, is it saying I need to go out and have a conversation on every single trip I take? No, absolutely not. Like, I'm, I'm not, that's not what the research is saying. It's saying that on balance, People may be avoiding others too much, and so you may want to try adjusting a little bit where you have a few conversations that you might not already ha- that you might not have otherwise had. And so I basically just let myself be open to it. So you know, I've had some amazing conversations with Uber drivers and Lyft drivers in particular that just they they have different life experiences sometimes, mm-hmm. and so that's a really I love the opportunities to connect with people that are just different from me because so many, so often in life, we just don't have those opportunities. And so, you know, at a moment where I might have sort of shut down the conversation or gone back to reading whatever I was reading, I'll be more open to it now. And um, it's been really fascinating for me. So I have updated there. And then another, in terms of the communication medium, one thing that I noticed I'll, I'll certainly do now is that um, I, I still use, of course, all the written platforms, email, etc. But I'll be very quick to cut off the conversation when it's starting to get to a place of being unproductive or potentially misunderstanding and say like, okay, time for us to hop on the phone. You know, and so, you know, it'll, it'll, I'm just much faster to make that decision than I would have been before. There's a lot of disagreements that blow up over email that could have been stopped. I watch them when I watch chains going around and think, you know, kind of 10 exchanges ago, if you'd picked up the phone, you could have sorted that out. Yes. And the counterfactual is right. So I'm like, what if they had picked up the phone? What would have happened differently? Yeah. So obviously we can't, uh, you know, most of us go out at the moment and sit on, you know, crowded tubes and talk to people. How how can we best be communicating in a pandemic? What you think, you know, with all the research that you've come across, what, you know, and, and you've carried out, what's what should we be doing? So one, I think people need to be leaning into their close connections and scheduling those calls with close others and really trying to keep that up. I think, you know, when the pandemic first started, there was sort of a surge of like, wow, amazing reconnections with all, you know, old high school friends, or Mm -hmm. let's hop on Zoom and check in with each other. And that's already starting to fade. And so I encourage people to kind of maintain those social connections. And then two, you know, going outside into the world is like a scarier place now. Everyone has masks on. Everyone's avoiding eye contact even more than ever. They're, you know, you see a runner, they run all the way onto the other side of the sidewalk yeah, to get away to from you. avoid coming near you. Yeah, it's like an obstacle course. <laughs> yeah. um, and there, I, I just think that what we need to remember is that we are physically distancing, but 
we're still a community. We still are socially connected. And so I really do try to make an effort to, you know, wave at a person and, and do make that eye contact even from six feet away. And so, you know, we're still being friendly with each other, even though we can't be shaking hands or hugging or walking near each other anymore. And so just yeah. kind of maintaining those community connections. And we can still talk from two meters away. We can still say hi to people. Yeah, um, right. And smile through our masks, even though literally no one can see us smiling. Uh, <laughs> I've seen masks where they have smiles. Where they have smiles on, on the front, <laughs> yes. So I, I always end the podcast with asking the same three questions. So I'm just going to finish by asking you these we are a podcast about people's technology habits and we've covered some aspects of that but if there's just one message that you'd like to give to everybody listening about their phone and tech habits maybe relating to now maybe relating to kind of our post-quarantine lockdown life what would it be just that all aspects of your social life are the key predictor of your happiness, well-being, and many different good outcomes in your life. And so really nourish those and cherish those. And when you communicate with people, do it in an intimate way. Don't do it in a way that will bring you farther apart, like using a written mm. medium. And have you got a tip that you use to keep a kind of balance with tech? I haven't even asked you, but, you know, kind of do you not use your phone at home around your kids or your partner do you not sleep with your phone you know is there anything you do that's worth sharing in terms of connection yes i'm uh, a lot quicker to put down my phone in terms of when it's just doing emails or just being distracting um, i think the phone is a wonderful tool for connecting with people deliberately when you're focused one-on-one -on, -one on someone but it can be a certainly a, a tool of distraction and taking us out of our in-person experiences so you really need to be cognizant when is your phone harming your social interaction that you're currently engaged in and when are you deliberately using it to connect mm. And finally, what have you learned about yourself from your observing the way you use technology, your phone, the digital world over the last decade, five years? Um, aside from the fact that I'm completely addicted to it in just the way that it was designed <laughs> to be. <laughs> like everyone um, else, yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, technology is this incredible, incredible tool. And it has so much potential. Like, think about where we would be in the world right now if we didn't have technology. Yeah. Well, we so wouldn't be ways. speaking, would we? We wouldn't be no. recording this podcast. Yeah. yeah, we wouldn't be able to have this fascinating conversation. But it can be maladaptive, right? And so it's all about how you use it. And so really being cognizant of like, am I using this phone in a way that is going to improve my well-being as opposed to detract from it? And really trying to consciously think about that you know how how is it that I can reduce my anxiety instead of increasing it with this amazing tool that I have and do you have those conversations with yourself every day or you know kind of or you find you don't need to I sometimes I'll um it's top of mind in a lot of my research but then like a week will pass by and I'll realize like I've gotten back into a cycle of <laughs> you know, checking it too much and so I'll just try to check myself in those moments and yeah it'll be a reminder Juliana, thank you so much for talking to me. I have been desperate to talk to you, I think you know, since even before the pandemic. 
But I think all your research is really so relevant to how we're living now, particularly in lockdown. So thank you so much for recording this. I think it's going to be really useful for everyone. Thank you so much as well. I'm so glad we could connect. Thank you for listening to this episode of It's Complicated. If you haven't already, please do subscribe, rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. It helps other people find us and it means you get a helpful little notification when a new episode becomes available. For more about getting a healthy balance with tech, you can follow me, Tanya Goodin, or Time to Log Off on Instagram and Twitter. And both my books, Off and Stop Staring at Screens, are available on Amazon and at all good bookshops. Finally, for more information about this and other episodes in the podcast series, visit itstimetologoff.com. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>